0: Thanks for tuning into Journey. Everyone is welcome at the table. We are a community being shaped by Jesus, experiencing and practicing humility, curiosity, belonging, and generosity. We hope to be a people who embrace the way of Jesus by listening first, speaking second, loving freely, and giving generously. Well, good morning, friends. It's great to see you. If you're new to our community, uh, we're relatively informal around these parts. Um, Jesus, if you read the gospels carefully, wore cargo shorts and flip-flops, and so we try to be very Christ-like in that way. Um, and yep, and Jesus didn't have a wife, and there was a reason. Um no, I'm just kidding. My wife was talking she was talking some some smack, okay, to me. Sometimes she'll just sit and taunt and fall asleep, and and it and it it toughens me up. It's it's glorious. Now, Uh, Today, ladies and gentlemen, we are continuing on in uh, a series of conversations. We've creatively titled Revelation, talking about, I'll give you one guess, which book in the Bible? Revelation! And it's not with an S, it's just one revelation. And remember, if you would, that uh, the book presents itself as a circular letter, which means, like the other circular letters in the New Testament, the original audience would have understood what it meant. And the book even says that time and time again, like, hey, let the reader understand, or blessed are the ones who read this prophecy, and hear it, and take it to heart. And so one of the big things that I think we often miss about the book is that it would have made sense to the original audience. And because, as a circular letter, it contained prophecy. Just as a reminder, prophecy wasn't primarily about predicting the future. It was primarily about calling the current generation of believers to fidelity to Jesus, And then the thing that really complicates the book for us is that it comes to us in the form of apocalyptic literature. And that was a very common, (coughs) pardon me, a very common way of writing in the first century. It is not common at all to us, and so it is very confusing and very hard to access. And so this book, which was meant to be a source of hope and encouragement for people, really has become sort of like this decoder ring sort of approach that is designed to keep people afraid of what God's going to do to all of those horrible pagans. And, um, and you know, hallelujah for God, and, and we think it's awesome, and all of the great teaching that's out there. But there's also some really bad and crummy theology that comes out of the book by not honoring the fact that it would have made sense to its original crew. So we're going through and asking the question, how would the original audience have heard this? And they wouldn't have thought about iraq or baghdad or saddam hussein they would have thought about old testament horizons and roman imperial horizons and so last week we began a throne scene that spans two chapters chapter four and five we just looked at chapter four today we're going to look at the very beginning of chapter five and then we're going to discover an image that we want to trace through the rest of the book now i can feel your excitement and joy so we'll pray for endurance. Thank you, Ellen. And if you have questions, there's a text line. Do we have anyone on the text line today? So you could text your questions to a phone that no one has in the room. <laughs> or you can ask questions and raise your hand and we'll get a microphone to you, Hannah. Would you be so kind as to uh, walk around with a microphone when it's time? Sure. 17 <laughs> year old are very excited about that prospect. Now, what we want to do is we want to begin with the central text we're going to look at. So this is Revelation chapter 5, verse 1. Remember, there are no chapter divisions in the original text. There aren't verse numbers. So this is, this is straight from where we ended in chapter 4. This is just the same vision. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Remember, this is a, a kind of oblique Jewish way of talking about God a scroll with writing on both sides and it was sealed with seven seals now we'll talk about that scroll next week about what it means and why it's sealed with seven seals and all those sorts of things but the question because it was sealed the way that scrolls worked in the first century is that if if something were sealed the only person that had authority to open it was the person that it was addressed to the person who had authority to open the the um the scroll meant that this was the person who could interpret it properly and execute whatever the contents of the scroll were. So the natural question you would ask in the first century is, okay, God's holding a scroll. Who can open this sucker? Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll was the question John asked, uh, or excuse me, a mighty angel asked. And then the answer was next. The answer was no one. In heaven and or on earth or under the earth, had the authority to open it or even look inside of it. And as we'll see, that's a pretty dramatic uh, slight against the Caesar of that time. Um, instead, John says, I wept and I wept because no one was found who was worthy to open it and look inside. Now, next slide, if you would. Notice, all right, and, and pay attention, if you would. I know some of this is super obscure. John is going to hear something, and then he's going to see something. And, and the way John uses this is super important to the image he's going he's to develop for us. One of the elders, remember we met 24 elders around the throne, one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and it's seven seals. So the angel says, who is worthy? No one on the earth or under the earth or in heaven is worthy, except this one referenced as the lion of the tribe of Judah and the root of David. So sweet, he hears about the lion, and then he looks, and what's he see? It says it right there. Then I saw a what? Looking as if it had been slain. Standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. Now, we'll spend some more time on this, but I want the the juxtaposition of this image. I heard about the lion of the tribe of Judah, and I saw a slaughtered lamb. That image of Jesus is the central image of the entire book. So let's explore it. I know you're dying to go into this Old Testament. Exactly. All right, so. The lion of the tribe of Judah, ladies and gentlemen, isn't just a good song lyric, but it is, comes from Genesis 49, where a man named Jacob is blessing his 12 sons. One of his sons was named Judah. And he says to Judah, as, he's, as Jacob is on his deathbed, Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. In other words, he'll be the preeminent tribe, and he'll be conquering Your father's sons will bow down to you. All right, so all the other sons that get blessings bow down to Judah. Next. You are a lion's cub, Judah. You return from the prey, my son. In other words, you've been out hunting. Like a lion, Judah will crouch and lies down. And like a lioness, who dares wake him up? The image here that's given is of a future ruler. The scepter will not depart from Judah. That's a scepter is a royal, kingly image, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. This is all stuff that gets applied to Jesus down the road. But I want you to know, the lion of the tribe of Judah was a shorthand phrase that stood for a Messiah who would come and conquer. Do you see that? Do you see that? I mean, I know we had the game yesterday. I know we're probably pretty tired. Ellen. Okay. It was a Tennessee-Alabama game, but it's okay. It's okay. Now, I'm just saying you're pretty drowsy. I, was exci- I have high expectations for the 11, and you're not meeting them. Not even, not, even, no, not even close. So I'm hoping you pick up the energy a little bit. I'll carry us until you guys wake up. But here's the thing. I'm really just playing. The image of Lion of the tribe of Judah was a militaristic, conquering image. It was the Messiah that was going to come, put his foot on the enemies of Israel, and be at the head of all the other tribes. Does this make sense? And do you see that from the text? Now, the other title that's used uh, in Revelation is the Root of David, which makes zero sense to us. But the idea was that Israel, this is one of the images in Isaiah, Israel is a stump. And there is one green shoot that pops out of that old dead stump. That means the stump is still alive. And that Jesus, the Messiah, they don't say it's Jesus, but the Messiah will be that shoot. And then Israel will grow into this flourishing tree again. So the image is in Isaiah 11, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. And then there's this detailed explanation of all that Messiah will be and do. It's referenced again in Isaiah chapter um, 11, verse 10. And that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for all the peoples. The nations will rally to him, and his resting place will be glorious. So here's, here's what I want you to understand, even if this is so confusing. When John hears... He hears about a lion from the tribe of Judah and a root of Jesse. Those are militaristic conquest images of what the Messiah would do when the Messiah showed up. Are you with me? He hears that the Messiah has conquered. But when he looks, what does he see? A lamb who was slain. Now this image comes from Exodus chapter 12 in an event called the Passover that really was the the final straw in an event called the Exodus, which is how God rescued the people out of slavery. Exodus 12, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, all right, way back in the Old Testament, Israel was enslaved to Egypt. There've been a number of plagues that have been put upon the, the people and the rulers of Egypt, but this is the one that will finally liberate the people. Israel, this month, Is for you to be the first month of your whole year. That's how big a deal this event is. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbor, having taken into account the number of people there are. You are to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. Our house will probably have a lot of lamb if you're just using that calculation. The animals you choose must be year-old males without defect, and you may take them from sheep or goats. Next. Take care of them for four days until the 14th day of the month when all members of the community of Israel must slaughter the lamb at what? Twilight. And then they take the blood and put some on the sides of the doorposts, and at the top, and it pulls at the bottom, so that when the, it's called the avenger, comes, um, they, the avenging angel will pass over all of the houses that have blood, and will only strike down the houses that don't. All right, that's the image of slaughtered lamb. So, on the one hand, you you get the great news. Who can open the, stro- the scroll, guys? Who can open the scroll? I've got great news. It's the conquering king. It's the Lion of Judah. It's the Root of David. This, all of this militaristic, like, conquering stuff, it's going to happen. And here it comes. And you look, and you see a Passover lamb that was has already been sacrificed. Can you see how jarring that would be? Now, as, you know... 2,000 years later, we all know the answer is Jesus, and yes, he you know, suffered and died for our sins, blah, blah, blah. But the idea that the Lamb has conquered is the most outrageous, ridiculous sentiment that you could, have, you could have proclaimed in the first century. The idea was, yes, all of the Old Testament images about the Messiah conquering are true, and the Messiah conquered by dying for his enemies rather than killing them. And you're like Rome how did they conquer by slaughtering their enemies how does Jesus conquer by dying for them that image the conquering Messiah manifests his conquering in dying for the people who are crucifying him that image drives the whole book and the reason we're gonna look at it is because there's some really violent imagery later in the book of Revelation that we're gonna look at today where people are tempted to think that somehow Jesus changes his strategy later on in the book, and it's like the first time he comes, he's meek and Mild. Second time he comes back, he's riding a horse with a sword, baby, and he's slaughtering everybody. I've heard very popular teachers say this, and it just couldn't be further from the truth. The defining image of the book of Revelation is a conquering king who conquers through sacrifice. And punchline the people of God are, conquered in the sa- are, are are to conquer in the same way today. all right now what we 're going to do is we 're going to look at the idea of conquering through the whole book of revelation now that we have that image. Make sense so far? Okay, fantastic. Ten minutes on this, and then relevance will make an appearance. all right <laughs> Revelation chapter two remember we 've met seven literal flesh and blood churches. And these churches existed on a postal route in Asia Minor. There were more churches than just these seven, but remember, seven is an important number for John. And each of the seven are addressed individually. And each of them end with an invitation to conquer or to overcome or to be triumphant. The Greek word can mean either of those. So this is the first church. The one who is what? All right, victorious. This, you could translate it, the one who conquers or the, the one who triumphs will not be hurt at all by the second death. We meet the second death later in the book. Okay, so all of these promises to those who conquer, we meet later on in the book. But I want you to see seven times the early church is invited to conquer or triumph or be victorious. Second church, to the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. And a new name, a rock with a new name on it. Next. Third church, the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. Next. Next. The one who is victorious will be dressed in white, will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life. Next. The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of God, never again will they leave it. Next. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne. So we meet seven churches. Some of them have compromised with the world around them. Some of them have stayed faithful, but they're all invited to conquer. They're all, and it's a military word. It's the word Nikeo, where we get Nike or victory from. And and literally, you're writing to communities of 10 to 15 people out of, you know, in Ephesus, the city's 200,000 people, and you're saying to those who conquer, I will give, and then all the rewards are listed. What a crazy and insane image. How are these politically vulnerable communities, how are they going to conquer? Well, shocker, they conquer the same way Jesus does. Revelation 6. We, and, and, and again, we'll get to some of this imagery down the road. So if, if it's making no sense to you now, that's totally okay. But we meet a group of people that will turn out to be the army of Jesus. This is the first time we meet them. When the angel opened the fifth seal, we'll meet seals down the road, I saw under the altar in heaven the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. So these are what? We have a word for people who die. These were martyrs. All right, now the word witness and the word martyr are the same word in Greek. So you'll read about witness all over the place. That's what that is, a witness unto death. They call out to God in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? How long will you put up, God, with injustice and with the fact that we're being martyred for you? Fascinating backstory to how long it's asked over 50 times throughout the Bible, and it's always asked in the context of injustice. God responds, and we'll talk about this later. Each of them were given a what? White robe. Now, white robes are going to become really important. And they were told to wait a little longer until the full number of their fellow servants, their brothers and sisters, were killed just as they had been. That's a weird answer. Can we agree? But we meet a group of people who have been slain for the faith. Do you see this? Now, we meet them again in chapter 7. Again, we'll get to the imagery. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth to prevent any wind from blowing on the land or the sea or on the trees. Then I saw another angel coming up from the east, having the seal of the living God. He called out in a loud voice to the four angels who've been given power to harm the sea and the land. Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. All right? And then we get a military census. All right? This is straight from Numbers 1 and 2 when the tribes of Israel would be counted for war. So this is telling us that we're meeting an army of 144,000 people. Now, the number isn't literal. It's a play on twelves. But notice, from the tribe of Judah, how many? Yeah, 12,000. Reuben? Yeah. Gad? I wonder what the rest are going to say. How about Asher? Asher? Naphtali? 12,000. Manasseh? 12,000. Right? Simeon, 12,000. Levi, uh, or uh, 12,000. Issachar, 12,000. Zebulun, 12,000. Joseph, 12,000. Benjamin, 12,000. This is how they did military census. 12,000 from each tribe of Israel for a total of 144,000. Right? So he sees, he hears about an army, and then he sees 144,000. And then he says, after this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude. That's why we know the 144,000 isn't literal, that it's symbolic. Because it's symbolic of the great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. Next. They were wearing what? And they, Thank you, Nate. And they were holding palm branches in their hands. The the angel and John have a conversation, but ultimately the angel says, this group of people are those who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them what? In the what? Blood of the Lamb. All right, so. You're doing great. You're doing great. I am doing great. Yeah, keep going. There are four of us who are loving life right now. By the way, I love you guys. Thanks for putting up with all this. I know this is thick stuff, man. It would just be easier to talk about dating or something. Um, Well, I don't know. Well, I mean, I'm just saying. You guys are still together. You could probably have a thing or two to teach us about dating, huh? You don't know this man. All right, security. We have a cleanup on aisle one over here to my right. Now. Thank you, Seth theory. Now, we meet an army. What's true of the army? How have they conquered? How do we know they've been sacrificed? How do they know they've been martyred? Because they've washed themselves in the blood of the lamb, and they were slaughtered because of their testimony. So, we've met the conquering king, and what's he look like? Slain lamb. And we've met the conquering army, What do they look like? People who were martyred for their faith, right? Fantastic. Now we get to 12, when the army engages in war against the dragon and his army. Yes! (laughs) And there is a celebratory hymn that's sung after the army conquers. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now have come the salvation and power of the kingdom of God and the authority of his Messiah for the accuser of our brothers and sisters, this great dragon who accuses them before our God day and night. He has been hurled down to the earth. They triumphed. The army triumphed over him by what? And the what? Well, what's word of their testimony mean? They just shared like, well, here's what I was before Jesus, and here I was what I am after. no. The word of their testimony means they did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. So we meet a king, and we meet an army, and how do they conquer? Through sacrifice. Are you with me so far? Now, this explains the really violent imagery that we get in chapter 19. And I want to deal with it here before we get there. Go ahead if you would. Chapter 19, my friend. Now this, yeah. And, I, and, and yeah. Anyway, I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. This is the only time we meet Jesus not as a lamb in the book. With justice, he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, Old Testament image, and on his head are many crowns, Old Testament image. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself, Old Testament image. He is dressed in a robe dipped in what? And his name is the word of God. The armies of heaven, we've met the armies of heaven, were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in what? White robes, right? Fine linen, white and clean. The guy on the horse coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword from which to strike down the nations. Now this is from Psalm 2. He will rule them with an iron scepter. That's a Psalm 2 messianic image. And then, the writer says, he treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he is his name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun who cried out in a loud voice to all the birds flying in the midair, come and gather together for the great supper of God. And you birds, that you might eat the flesh of kings, generals, and the mighty horses, and the riders, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, great and small. Right. Can Can we agree that sounds a little different from the whole lamb that was slain bit? Can we agree with that? So... Let's talk about the image. The image of the wine press comes, if you want to read it, extra points in heaven for you, comes from Isaiah 63, and it's God stomping on his enemies, and the blood of his enemies is covering his robe. Really violent image in Isaiah 63. That image gets carried forward into Revelation because Jesus has come back to settle some scores. The problem with understanding this as violent imagery is that, Jesus' robe is dipped in what? Before the battle has started. The question is, whose blood is it? In Isaiah 63, it's the blood of God's enemies. In Revelation, what have we been trained to understand the blood on Jesus' robe is? His own blood. Yes, exactly right. So the question, and this, and John does this so many different ways, but he takes an Old Testament image that was understood one way, applies it to Jesus, and you get a completely different image. So it's God conquering his enemies, but with the blood of his sacrifice already on his robe before the battle begins. Are you with me? So is he still conquering the way the lamb conquers? Yes. And the sword coming out of his mouth, that's another Isaiah image. And it just means... The truth, he is simply uttering the truth about who he is, king of kings and lord of lords. And so even the most violent image in the book is subverted by the slain lamb image we get in Revelation chapter 5. Are you with me on this? Any questions on this? This is really, really important. Because there are a number of people who say, well, yeah, violence in the name of Jesus is justified because look how violent Jesus is at the end of the book. And we would say, boy, that's a misreading of the text if we've ever seen one. Anytime blood and Jesus are associated, it's because of his sacrifice, not because of violence on his part. Are you with me? Excellent. Now, we have 15 minutes for three implications. Oh, are there questions? Oh, there are questions? Oh, yeah, th- no, this no, is no, what no. the text questions look like. <laughs> hey, Mike, I love you. <laughs> oh, these are from last service. Okay, well, I'll tell you what. Let me know when one comes up, just because I won't be able to focus. All right. Implications. Implications. By the way, you're doing great. <laughs> you're doing great. You're doing great Now, even though we do not lean over like that, my son, you of all people have to pretend to be interested. (laughs) Implications. All right, here we go. We don't live, obviously, in the same world that they did, and we don't live uh, under the threat of the same persecution they did. Remember, the seven churches were in crisis. One group of seven churches was in crisis because they were being persecuted. One group of seven churches was in crisis because they weren't. One group was totally at odds with the surrounding culture, and another group fit right in. And as as a 21st century Christian living in a very affluent, safe, secure area, I have to wonder, which, which am I? The persecuted one or the accommodating one? And so my temptation... Is towards accommodation so the question that that revelation poses for us is what does faithfulness to Jesus look like today we know what it looked like for them they loved um, the, the gospel of Jesus and the person of Jesus more than they even loved their lives what's that look like for us because even though we're not in a real war we are in a culture war or so we're told so three implications that I think come from the book of Revelation in this image are you ready Implication number one, unless it acts like Jesus, it's not Christian. Novel concept. Let's apply the word Christian only to those things that are willing to die for their enemies. It doesn't matter what they say. It doesn't matter what they sing. It doesn't matter what their doctrinal statement is. It doesn't matter... Anything, if it does not engage in the enemy loving, showing kindness to the just and unjust alike love of Jesus of Nazareth, it's not Christian. Okay? That's true of churches. That's true of movements. That's true of politics. That's true of economics. Unless it looks like Jesus and acts like Jesus, it's not Christian. So let's just save that word for only those Things that look like a willingness to die for enemies rather than to subjugate them. Like that's a big st- start right there. Yeah. Second thing. Yeah, that one hits me. This one hits me even more. In, in Revelation and in the New Testament, it's far more important to be faithful than to be effective. Nowhere are churches and people commanded to do great things for God. Not one place. In fact, Paul will say directly, make it your ambition to live a quiet life, work with your hands, and be at peace with everybody. So if you're under the age of 25, and you feel this immense pressure to do great things for God, I'll tell you what great things for God looks like. Love your neighbor. Be faithful to the commitments you've made. Be a part of a community of people who aren't like you. And then see what happens. There's no pressure for us to do great things for God. Nowhere is the church commanded to transform the culture. Look, read the New Testament, not one place. The church, though, is is called to transform, but itself. And so when Paul says, be transformed by the renewing of your minds, he's writing to a church over against the patterns of the world. And so, we're so we get so caught up in trying to transform everybody else, our house is dirty, and so is my life. And so there is a beautiful invitation in the book of Revelation to not count and to not care about numbers. But as Americans, man, that's all we care about. Even churches, right? We rank the fastest-growing churches. I've complained about this before. It's, it's insane to me. And we think if it's big, it means it's great. And that's not always the case. Are you with me? Are we preaching? So the goal for us isn't to worry about what everyone else is doing today. The goal for us is to encounter the text, the spirit, and the community. And to ask, okay, how does this transform me more and more into the image of Jesus? And then the last thing, and this one is the worst. Nothing is so urgent in our world that you have to get off your cross in order to accomplish it. Jesus talks about his followers as if they are carrying their crosses around. And that was a very Jesus way of talking about people who are willing to relinquish their rights and their privileges and their social standing in the world to be a part of the thing that Jesus is doing. We've all been discipled to think that there are things of such magnitude happening in our world that it's okay to skip the love your enemies part or to bless those who persecute you part because there are things that are happening that are so important. They need me to not act like Jesus in order to accomplish Jesus's agenda. And we've all bought this, and it's demonic. It truly is. Never once does Jesus need evil to accomplish his will and the american church has been captured by the ends justify the means theology and it's just totally antichrist. if you think jesus's agenda requires you to cease being loving and humble and somebody who seeks power under rather than power over you've missed jesus's agenda entirely and this is to me Because I'm tempted to think that what's going to fix our world is a strong military, a stable economy, and the right political party in power. And don't tell me I'm the only one that thinks that. And what revelation is going to provoke in us is the instability of all of those things and how easily those things can become idols. And so as people who are, I mean, evangelism is a great example. I grew up being told that the most important thing I could do was save souls. And it didn't matter how you saved them as long as they were saved. So if you had to guilt people into it, if you had to scare them into it, if you had to be awkward and awkward them into it, if you had to nag them into it, it didn't matter. But when you look at how Jesus and Paul shared their faith, they didn't do any of those things. Not one, they just invited. And so there, I, I grew up learning that it was okay not to follow Jesus in order to make people converts of Jesus. And it's like, how, what, how messed up is that? So the reason we want to make revelation about the tribulation, the antichrist, is because then it, then, then it just becomes an object of curiosity rather than a prophetic calling out of the ways we accommodate to the patterns of the world. It, gets the it totally gets us off the hook. Absolutely. Hey guys, do you think the millennium's real or not? Who cares? <laughs> Any questions on this stuff for seven minutes? Great. Yes. Oh, Hannah, you're off the hook. <laughs> yep, over here. Thank you, ma'am. Oh, can you wait for the microphone just so the online people can hear? I just want to point a clarification on your first implication. Yes. Which So you said Christian, then it's not or some. Y- yeah. Yep. Which it, I think that's great. But then um, then you said, I think, quote you, but if we're not willing to die for our enemies, yeah. then it's not Christian. Right. Um, And I was wondering if you could just expound on that a little bit because when I play that out, I think that that could be, in my mind, I think that that can be dangerous. Oh, sure. Um, and I think there can be applications of that. And yeah. I, I don't want to, you know, undermine you, but where I think that can be inaccurate. So. Oh, ma'am, undermine away. I am okay. so <laughs> I am so on the journey with everybody else. So please don't ever hesitate to either say, "Hey, I think you're wrong," or, "Hey, could you clarify that?" I really I'm glad that you said that. Um, you don't ever have to agree with all that I'm saying that's not the goal of our time. Um, There are ways in which you can uh, paint this teaching in a very passive way that says, hey, if you're being abused, just take it. Uh, If uh, evil's being done to you, just have to, like, part of Christian duty is just to sit there passively. And when we look at, and we looked at it, I don't know, uh, months ago, we looked at the Sermon on the Mount, we talked about how, Jesus isn't inviting us into passivity. The issue was, do you love your life more than you love uh, what Jesus is doing in the midst of his kingdom? Right, that's the issue. So I'm not being called to die for my faith yet. I could be someday. But rather, I'm called to do the much more hard thing for me, which is die to myself, right? And the dying to myself that goes on every day is the death to my entitlements, my privileges, my you know, the things that I would prefer, and so on and so on. So on the one hand, I want to let the teaching just stand and say, yes, the kind of love that Jesus displays is the kind of love that dies for enemies. And that's the kind of love we're to emulate. Are there places where uh, that can be taken way too far? Absolutely. We're not called to be passive doormats, but the kind of resistance we're invited to show is the nonviolent kind that Jesus kind of illustrates in the Sermon on the Mount. Does that help at all? Well, thank you. That's a great question. I'm glad you asked it. Thank you. Anything else? Just one more or two. You, we don't have to, but you know, you know that Jesus loves when you ask. <laughs> he does. I mean, he says it. Oh yes. Hey. Um, when you were talking about the violent part in like chapter 19, yes, I was wondering. If he was covered in his own blood, what did the wine staining on his robe signify? Because it was saying that it was the blood of his enemies, but what does that really mean? Oh, that's so good. That is a genius, genius question, young lady. Thank you. All right, this will be our last one. We're going to end on that. So what Jesus is doing, and, and, and well, actually what John's doing, John is the writer of all of this. What John's doing, and he does this a bunch of different places, but in the same way he takes the lion image, which is a violent image, and then says, hey, it's fulfilled in the surprising way of a lamb that was sacrificed. In the same way that Isaiah 63 image of God stomping, and this robe has the blood of his enemies, now God is going to be victorious over his enemies, not by stomping on them, by instead sacrificing himself for them. So, so the blood on the robe is, instead of the blood of his enemies, like in Isaiah, it's his own blood, and that's the surprise, is that Jesus conquers, he's everything the Old Testament said he was. He is the conquering king, he's the ruler of the nations, but all of that took place in the surprising way of him sacrificing himself for other people rather than killing them. So the Isaiah image is definitely violent, but it's reconfigured around the sacrifice of Jesus in a different way so as to tell the story that John is telling the whole way through revelation, which is the lamb conquers by sacrificing himself. Does that make sense? Man, genius. All right, ladies and gentlemen, I'm gonna invite you to stand. We are gonna take some time. And you are invited. I don't know why I'm taking my microphone off. You are invited. To celebrate the symbol of the the slain lamb today, this, I mean, have you, have you ever just thought how weird Christians are? Have you ever just thought about this? How would you explain communion to somebody who isn't a follower of Jesus? Yeah, so our founder was murdered. And so we take juice that that symbolizes his blood and bread that symbolizes his body, and we eat that. (laughs) Right? That's just, can we agree that's just weird? That is pretty strange. But it makes sense if a whole group of people believe that what happened in that guy's death is that evil evil was overcome, that hope and new creation was launched, and that there are people who can experience that today. So we are a people who are formed around the bread and the cup, not as some abstract symbol, but because this is the symbol we get of what our salvation is consists of and then looks like as we play it out together so we invite you to go to the tables to take the bread and the cup we invite you go to the prayer stations to write down prayers we invite you to just do if you want to sit stand whatever you're more than welcome to do that but we take this time to chew on to respond and to engage in community formation in response to what it is that we've heard